Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. You ever played hide and seek with a kid that's just old enough to kind of get the game, like just getting there? And what happens? Like you get done counting, it's like to 10 as slow as you possibly can, and you turn around and somehow they're still like trying to hide. Or like they're standing behind something that's not big enough to cover them. And you're just like, what a big dumb idiot. <laughs> I mean, you don't say that to the kid. But that's like, you're like, okay, this is, this is simple, right? But what happens like when the kid actually manages to find like a, a good hiding spot, right? Then it's like a panic-stricken five minutes where you're like, it, they're dead. They're dead. They're somewhere in the house, found their way into something they shouldn't have been in, and they're gone, right? And... You end up finding them like folded in half in a drawer, and you're like, how do you fit in here? I don't, I don't get it. And that's the thing about, about hide-and-seek, right? The reality is when you play with a kid that young, it's not that hard to find them. Right? They're not that good at it. And you're not like all-knowing or all, you know, everywhere at once, but you can still find that kid pretty easily. One time when I was a kid, I hid in a closet, and I drank mouthwash. And before you get all high and mighty and think, what a big dumb idiot, it was bubblegum flavored. So, (laughs) of course, I wanted some of that. I was like, this is delicious. Like, this is happening. So I drank a bunch of bubblegum flavored mouthwash. And when my mom finally found me, then all of a sudden she's like trying to call poison control and see what the issue is. And I was fine, obviously. I mean, hopefully, I guess, remains to be seen. But I think I was fine. Well, here's the thing. We do this with God. We play hide and seek with God like a kid that thinks that there's some place that we can go where he's not going to see us so that we can kind of hang on to our sin. And we hang on to our sin because it tastes good going down. The problem is it makes you sick once it's inside. And we want to, to just... Be left alone with it, but the reality is that God loves us too much to let us just sit in our sin. He wants to find us, and he wants to actually rescue us from that sin. That is the gospel, that God came to find you, that he came to rescue you, and that that's only bad if you prefer your sin over him, right? If you want your sin more than you want God. I knew a a girl, she was actually in her house during a break-in, and she went and hid in the closet, and sure enough, they found her. They opened the door, and she was sitting there crying, bawling her eyes out, saying, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. Now, lucky for her, they didn't think anybody was home, and when they saw her, they just bailed. What was the difference between my mom finding me and that person finding her? It was the relationship that we had with the person looking for us. See, being found by God will happen. The difference between whether it's good or whether it's bad in your life is the relationship you have to him when he finds you. We're in a series called Straight Out of Israel, and I've, de- de- I've described this series as a rap album, right? This series is the Old Testament equivalent of a rap diss track. Uh, Amos has turned out to be just a wordsmith of beyond measure. Right? He, he uses wordplay, he has twists and attention-grabbing gimmicks, some sick beats. He is, he is pulling in his audience, and he is letting them know, this is how God feels about you right now. And everything he's done, right, he's done it to get their attention. He wants them to hear the message that God has for them, so he's using all of these techniques so that they'll pay attention to him, so that they'll look and listen and hear the word of the Lord. Well, in Amos chapter 9... Well, we're going to see something different. Have you ever been at a concert where the artist stops the concert and says, well, I want to talk about something serious tonight, right? And then they, they monologue, and it's um, some cause that you probably don't care about or didn't go there to see. Well, this is Amos essentially doing that. He's used all these gimmicks, all these techniques. He's done all these things to get through to the people of Israel. But in this moment, he's going to say, hey, I'm done with the games. I'm done with all the crazy stuff. He, he really uses one last hook. And then he's pretty much going to just let God talk the entire time. God is just going to speak in all of chapter 9. And uh, what we see, if we, if we look back at the whole 
uh, book of Amos, there's five visions. And each vision becomes less and less Amos and more and more God. That really is the model for our life. In our lives, we should be seeking how we can decrease so that he can increase. I want less and less of me because I don't have anything redeeming to offer. And I want more and more of God in me. And that's what Amos is doing. See, because Amos understood something that we all need to understand. No one is going to be saved by knowing my name. But they can be saved by knowing God's name. By knowing Jesus. So tonight, we're going to see that God is talking about finding the Israelites. Remember, we've already seen the scariest verse in the entire Bible earlier. It was, prepare to meet your God. See, the thing about prepare to meet your God is that it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's only a bad thing, again, if you're rejecting the Lord, but it should be a joyful thing. See, fear of the Lord is to care more about his opinion than about the opinions of the world. It's to care more about God than you care about the world. It's not a terror. It's not a, a frightened feeling of God. See, John Calvin said that true piety was fearing to hurt God even if hell never existed. It's to love God. And to love God so much, I don't want to hurt him. See, those who fear the Lord, they have nothing to fear at all. That is the message of the Bible. God wants to separate us from our sin, but our sin is separating us from God. Look with me at Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the pillar, capitals, so that the thresholds will shake, and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will put to death the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a survivor who will escape. So this first verse, we see God standing beside the altar. Now this is the hook right here of the entire chapter, because God standing beside the altar would have communicated to the Israelites that he was accepting their offering. Right? He had come to the, to the table, and he was accepting their worship of him in their offering. And what have we seen the whole time? The entire book of Amos has been referring to the worship that they're doing at Bethel and how that worship is not pleasing to the Lord. And so he says that it says that he's standing beside the altar, but then we see a picture of the temple collapsing on those who are worshiping inside of it. That's what, that's what the rest of that verse is describing, is the temple collapsing. So the hook is that, oh, oh, God's accepting our sacrifice. Oh, wait, the picture is that it's falling down on our heads, right? And so then God says, my sword, he says, uh, in 7.9, he actually called it my sword. So that's the sword we're seeing in this verse. He says that the rest of them will be put to death by the sword. So everyone that the temple doesn't come down on is go are going to be hunted. We see... Two, two versions of this. He says, you won't have a fugitive to flee and no survivors will escape. This is saying that no one's going to be able to escape the judgment whether they live through the initial catastrophe or not. No one's going to be able to outrun it and no one's going to be able to escape it. God is going to come down on the heads of the people who have rejected him. Look at verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol... From there, my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will track them down and take them from there. And though they hide themselves from my sight on the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. And I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. So it gives three, uh, three sets of statements there. The first statements um, are the universe. It says, I will find them in heaven and I'll find them in Sheol. Sheol was like the place of the dead, essentially. It was a traditional belief of the, of the Jews. Um, there's a lot of theology that goes into that, whether that's a waiting area. It's not really important because it's almost poetic language here, which is saying there's nowhere in the universe, not the highest heights in heaven or the lowest lows of the dead, can you escape God. Can you escape his presence? It's a universal statement. And then he says, 
the whole the next two statements are the whole earth and the last statement is even in captivity i want you to see that statement is a statement of ownership see you might you might say well god can't punish me i'm already owned by someone else but god's saying no 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 i own everything and everybody you're not going to escape my punishment because you're already being held captive they don't own you i own you i own them I own everybody. See, we see in Scripture that God has already redeemed all of creation to himself. He is the owner. You exist in relationship to God no matter what. So the question is, what does that relationship look like? And I want you to see this. Psalm 139, starting in verse 7, it says, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will take hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. See, here's the thing about God's presence and its inescapability. It's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to be a good thing. See, I don't want to be outside of the presence of the Lord. I want that no matter where I go, I'm not out of reach. I'm not too far away. I'm not somewhere where he can't reach me and save me and rescue me. The problem is that if I'm rejecting him then suddenly I'm going to make God's presence a bad thing for me. It says, my, uh, the Lord says, my eyes are against them. It says, my eyes are against them. I want you to compare that to a verse you all, uh, verses you all know in Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And, I will, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will let myself be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. See, again, what we're seeing here is that the eyes of the Lord were looking for a way to harm his enemies. See, they had perverted they had changed what should be a good thing that God has plans for us he has hopes for us but see when we reject those plans and those hopes suddenly God's plans for us are not something that we're going to enjoy or want they're going to be something that separates us from him I want God's plans for my life my sin reverses and perverts the effect of God's presence in my life. It changes what should be a good thing to something that makes me miserable. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chances are you've read that passage in your life and you've found comfort in it because that's the whole point. The whole point is that the love of God is reaching out for you. It's trying to find you. See, the book of Amos is an entire book of showing us what happens when we spit in God's face, when instead of letting him love us, we choose to reject him and make his presence something that we see as evil. You will be reconciled perfectly in relation to God. You will be. The question is, will that be a bad thing for you or not? Will that be bad or good? Because you can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You are separated from God by your sin. And the whole goal of the gospel is that even though your sin has separated you from, from God, God wants to separate you from your sin and bring you back to himself. He wants you to be in relationship with him. Understand what the gospel is. It is the redemptive work of God throughout all of human history that took place on the cross. Jesus Christ paying his own life and his own blood that he did not deserve to pay, that you do deserve to pay, 
so that you don't have to. That is the entire point. And Amos is an entire book showing us what happens when you reject that. When God sacrifices himself for you and you scorn him. Why did I have to hide in a closet to drink bubblegum mouthwash? Because it's bad for me. My mom knows it's bad for me. She wanted to stop me from drinking it. She was going to make sure that I didn't get a hold of that and chug. Right? And see, what would happen if I rebelled in that? And I was just like, no, now I've tasted it. I'm going to get it, whatever it takes. My mom would have done whatever she could have done, even to the point of disciplining me, even to the point of upsetting me to keep me from getting something that was going to hurt me. But what happens if I grew up, but I never grew out of that habit? See, at some point, I was going to leave the house. At some point, my mom was going to have to let me suffer the consequences from my actions. If I just said, never, never took the discipline, never let myself be trained to not do that, and I grew up and I just made my life about that, even just because it tastes good going down, but I always made myself sick, even to the point of real harm. See, at some point, my mom would have had to let me suffer the consequences, even though she loved me. See, God loves us. And he loves us so much that he's doing everything he can to keep us from going down bad roads and hitting face first into brick walls. It's like a parent that doesn't want their kid to run out in traffic, right? But at some point, God is going to let you suffer the consequence of your actions because you're choosing them. You're making a decision. First John 3, First John 3, verse 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who, no one who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin continually because he has been born of God. See, the world tells us just live your truth, be your most authentic self. But the reality is that the Bible has defined for us what sin is, not because it just wants to ruin our fun and kill our buzz. It's because God cares about us so much that he doesn't want us to get a hold of things that are going to hurt us. He doesn't want us to get a hold of things that are going to poison us. That's the point of God restricting sin in our lives. Look at verse 5. The Lord, God of armies, the one who touches the land so that it quakes and all those who live in it mourn and all, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. It says God, the Lord of angel armies. This is the authoritative title of God, right? This is the one that says he's sovereign, that he controls all things. It's also the one that means he's the uh, general in command. He's the commander of the angel armies. It's essentially a, a war title. Right, see, what's happening here is that God is declaring war on sin. It says that he creates his chambers in the heaven and his vaulted dome in the sky. That is a picture of creation. And then it says he calls the waters and pours them out over the earth. That is a picture of orchestration or a, of organization. What is that? That is literally the two things, the two attributes of God that we see in the creation story that Paul says all human beings are aware of, that God created everything and organizes it, sustains it, runs it. See, the world wants to tell you that God uh, wound up this clock and then let it run and just left. Maybe, maybe he's watching, but he doesn't care about it. He's not He's not participating in it, but that's not the testimony of the Bible. See, the testimony of the Bible is that God not only created all things, but he's orchestrating them. 
He's in control of them. He is involved. Look at verse 7. Are you not the sons of Ethiopia to me, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? See, Israel assumed that they had a special relationship with God that automatically guaranteed their future, right? And, and they assumed that this relationship with God was just, it was basically ethnic. Because they were Israelites, they automatically get the blessings. It's the equivalent of people who show up at church every Sunday and they're like, well, I'm in the building. I'm around all the other people that believe all this stuff. So I, I automatically am in. God, I'm going to get up to heaven and God's going to be like, let's check your church attendance. And you'll have missed a few times. You can come in. That's not how it works. That's not what God is looking for. You don't have a guarantee because of a group relationship. You have to know the Lord. You have to be involved with him. See, he uses a series of terms here. Uh, the, the reference to Ethiopia, Cush, was the, the province in Ethiopia is the other word that might be in some of your translations. It was the most remote region in Israel's experience. It was the furthest away from them, the furthest in the south part of Egypt at this point. Okay, So that reference is God is setting essentially a boundary of saying, I control everything you know. The furthest extent of your knowledge, I'm in charge of that. There's nothing, out, there's nothing that you're aware of that I'm not controlling. Because that was their greatest experience. The, the reference to Egypt is always a reference to God's ownership of Israel. He's saying, I redeemed you. I bought you. I brought you out of Egypt. You're mine. See, here's the thing. All of creation is the Lord's. All of human history, all of humanity, everything is the Lord's. Right? You're not just God's. If you, you're not just his, if you accept him and become his child. Now, you have a special relationship then. You're his in a different kind of way that actually receives the privileges of being his. But everything in all of creation is owned by the almighty God no matter what. It's all his to do with what he wants. Now, the, the great news of that is that he wants that you would be reconciled with him. He wants that you would experience his love for you, his care for you, that you don't have to experience the separation that you were born into, but that you can know him in a personal and intimate way. That's what he wants for you. See, it would be one thing if I told you the almighty God rules all, all of creation. He owns everything and he hates your guts. It'd be a terrifying message. But the testimony of the Bible is the Almighty God controls everything and He is doing everything He can to bring you into a relationship with Him so that you can know Him and love Him. He says, he mentions the Philistines and the Arameans here. See, here's the claim. Here's what this, this verse was building to. The claim is, I work with all nations. Just because I work with Israel in a special kind of way doesn't mean uh, that, you're, that you get a pass because I'm involved with every nation. See, this is a shocking claim to the Israelites, even, even just everybody in general in this time period because gods were seen as like regional, right? Like if you lived in an area and you worshiped a god and then you moved away, you like traveled to a new land, you would travel to a new land and you would worship whatever god you found there. You just adopt that new god because that god was in charge of that hilltop or whatever. Right, And the argument, the claim that God is making here is, I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm not just, my power doesn't extend just to the borders. I work with all nations. And the same punishment that the other nations will receive because they reject me, you're not exempt from that. You don't, you don't get to just like try to get outside of the boundary and somehow you don't have to suffer when you reject me, when you spit in my face. He's saying, I am working in all places. See, I hear this claim sometimes, well, I just feel God working in my life. 
Here's the thing. God is working in your life. That doesn't mean he's happy with you, right? It's not an automatic, okay? Now, what does mean God's happy with you? I want to I clear this up. God is objectively happy with you if you are his child. End of story, right? End of story. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're not earning some kind of favor with God. He's happy with you because you're his child. That is the bottom line of it. But here's the thing. You have to actually be his child. And you're not actually his child unless you look like his child. Unless you're acting like his child. Now, you're not earning it, but you're reacting to the reality of who you are. I tell you guys this all the time. There's this, there's this back and forth in Christian theology between this idea of like, well, it's faith alone, so all I got to do is just clench my fist and say, I believe, and we're good to go, right? And then you got this whole other end over here where people are like, well, if you don't do, you got to do stuff. If you don't do stuff, you're not safe. You got to do stuff, and, and you got to earn it. And, that's, and, you know, there's this whole place where you might go, and it's like a waiting area, and you like, if you weren't good enough, you'll kind of work your way out of that. Okay, these are both wrong. Here's the reality. It's not just a head knowledge or just believing in God like you believe in Santa, and it's not something that you're earning, something that you're building to. It is that when you believe that God has saved you, you react to that in external ways. Your life will reflect it. You will look like Christ. That is the truth of being his child. Is your life bearing fruit? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did a year ago, two years ago, even a day ago? I mean, are you growing at all? And it's not enough to just be in the room. I had a conversation with a young adult. She came and sat in my office and she said, I've been attending, I've been here, and everybody seems to have something they're, they're growing in some way. They, they, they're experiencing God in some way. And I don't, how long do I have to show up before I get that too? Well, there's a little bit more to it. I said, see, the thing is, those people that you're looking at that you think, well, if I just attend long enough, it'll just set in, those people have bought in. They've sold out. They're reading their Bible every day. They're getting discipled. They're getting poured into. See, when you react to the truth that God has saved you, it changes everything about your life. It brings you into a relationship with God that causes you to love him so much that if hell didn't even exist, you would still not want to offend him. That is fearing the Lord. Look at verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will eliminate it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally eliminate the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the catastrophe will not overtake or confront us. See, this is really like the first glimmer of hope in the whole book. It's like the first, like really, it's the first time that we see like a hint of salvation beyond just the, the, the appeal of the prophet saying, seek the Lord so that you may live, right? Which they totally reject. All of a sudden, we see this image of a sea. See, a sea was a tool where you'd put uh, the grain and, and all the stuff that was with the grain into something, you'd shake it up, and the grain would filter through, but all the junk would be in the top. You know what you did with the junk? You threw it out. And what God is saying is, I'm going to sieve the nation of Israel. I'm going to sieve my people, and all my people, I'm going to collect them, and I'm going to throw the rest out. See, here's my question for you. If God was to scoop this room up in a sieve right now and shake it, how many of you would be collected, and how many of you would be thrown out? That's the question. That is the question is not if you're in the room, but how will you be sorted? 
See, God says, all the sinners among my people will die because I'm going to purify my nation. I'm going to purify my people, my children. I'm going to bring them close to me. 1 John chapter 1 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. By this we know that we have uh, come to know him if we keep his commandments the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who says that he remains in him ought himself also walk just as he walked. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Do you take your sin seriously? Do you actually take your sin seriously? Because here's the thing, you can't be saved if you don't know what you're being saved from. If you don't think you need to be saved, how could you possibly have accepted the saving? you first have to see that there is no one righteous. No, not one. And once you see how much you need salvation, once you admit and confess that you need saving, then you can be saved. This is not perfection, by the way. This is about not choosing your sin. See, your sin, your sin should grieve you. If you are constantly looking at your sin and figuring out ways to justify it and explain it away, that's not repentance. See, repentance is looking your sin in the face and saying, God, take this from me. Take this and rip it out of my life because I don't want it if it keeps me from you. I fear hurting you. You cannot stand before God in your own merit. You need a Savior who will stand before God for you. Now, someone in here is probably thinking, I have to address this because this is, this is the logical place that our brains try to run to, especially because we grow up in this like Judeo-Christian society and we're all like, like, according to us, we're like morally decent people. And so someone in here is like, yeah, but like, I've never murdered anybody. My sin's like not that big of a deal. Why do I deserve, like, so much punishment, so much wrath? Like, why is the reaction so heavy for, like, oh, like the little bit of stuff I'm doing? Every time I hear that argument, I, I go to the same place in my head. If you, if you go to the junkyard and you scratch a car in the junkyard, how much trouble are you in? None. No one cares. If you, if you go next door to your neighbor's house, you find their little Kia Forte that's like rusting already, and you scratch their car, you're in more trouble. You're in a little bit more trouble, at least. Like, they're probably going to be upset about it. What happens if you go to the, the nearest dealership, you find the nicest car on the lot, and you scratch that car? You're in even more trouble? You are. What changed about what you were doing? Not your action. You did the same small thing every single time. The only thing that changed was the value of the thing that you were scratching. The value of what you offended changed how much trouble you were in. And here's the thing. When you sin in even the smallest way, you scratch an infinitely valuable God. And when you offend an infinitely valuable God, you owe him infinitely. There is no way 
that you can ever pay back the sin that you owe God, even if you think it's barely anything. Even if you think that you're the best person you know. First of all, you're hanging out in the wrong room. But the reality is, you need to understand that your sin has caused you an infinite debt. Look at verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the fallen shelter of David and wall up its gaps. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So this is, I want you to see what this verse is. This is everywhere in the Bible. And, and we read uh, the Old Testament wrong when we don't find this. This is talking about the house of David. Now, the reference to the house of David, keep in mind, house, not like physical house, but like a lineage, right? The house of David. And what it's talking about is the Messiah. God is saying in this verse, I am going to lift back up the lineage of David. I'm going to bring about a Messiah, a Savior, someone to redeem you. Now, the reference to the tent of David is really referencing it in the state that it is now, the shelter, the fallen shelter, the, the, it, is, it doesn't look super impressive right now, right? The, the lineage is broken, things aren't looking good in Israel, they're about to get wiped out, and God says, I'm going to take the promise of the Messiah, and I'm going to raise it up. And you're going to have a Davidic king again, a permanent Davidic king. Look at verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 12, I want you to see this. This is where the good news of the Old Testament gets really good for us. This says that this house, this house of David, will not just be a shelter or a house for the Israelites. It will be a house and a shelter for all nations. A shelter for the Gentiles. See, that's us. See, the Jews thought that they were the only nation that God cared about, and they missed the point that God was using them to care about everyone ever. See, the Israelites were supposed to bring about the Messiah and point the entire world to him. The message, even in the book of Amos, is that the Davidic king, the Messiah, the Savior, he came even for you. And you're not even connected. You're not connected ethnically. You're not connected in this in this tradition to the people of Israel, and yet God was already thinking about you. He was already making a way to include you, to make sure that you could also come to know him. Look at verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed, when the mountains will drip grape juice, and all the hills will come apart. I will also restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not be uprooted again from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is a picture of heaven. I want you to see this. This is what heaven is supposed to look like. This is promises that are for every single person who will be included in the house of David. Every single person that God will save, that God will bring to himself, that God will take into heaven is going to experience this. What the picture in that first portion, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. See, here's the thing. There was a separation between these events. There would have been um, a, a harvest or a, a sowing, and then a harvest. And the idea was, when the harvest happened, it was going to be so bountiful that they wouldn't be done harvesting it by the time it was time to sow again. See, I want you to see something. All of human history is based in this kind of tentative survival of humans, right? 
We got to plant food and we got to harvest food. We got to hope we got enough food to last the winter until the next chance we get to sow food. And we have to depend on God every day just to have enough. That's all of human history. And what God is saying about heaven is it's going to be a place where the sustainment is so bountiful, it's so much, it's so crazy that you won't even have time to harvest everything you've got before it's time to plant more. There will never run out anything you need on any level in heaven. You will want for nothing. But that picture is not necess- it's not only a physical sustainment, it's also a spiritual sustainment. You will have a connection with God that spiritually sustains you and never runs out. You ever have a dry, quiet time? Never again. You know why? Because you're not going to have to look at black and white texts and try to picture Jesus. You're just going to sit with him and look directly into his eyes and talk to him. And he's going to tell you how he feels about you. And you're never going to want ever again because it's going to fill you up every single day to the point that you cannot run out. He says, I'm going to restore fortunes. I'm going to bring the exiles home. I want you to understand something. If you are a child of the living God, you are an exile on earth and God is going to bring you home. Here's the thing about this. Are you trying to be comfortable here? Are you comfortable here? Because if you are making a home for yourself here, then this might be your home. It's not my home. I don't belong here. See, I'm here as an ambassador. I'm here as an exile. I'm here waiting for the opportunity to go home. I don't want this to be my home. This place is falling apart at the seams. I want to be where there's never need again. He says you're going to plant vineyards and gardens, you're going to eat, and you're going to drink. I want you to understand what this verse is. It's it's culturally significant. See, when they talk about planting vineyards and gardens, what happened in that time period? See, either you planted vineyards and gardens and you hoped that war or just general instability or raids or famine or drought or whatever didn't hit and take that stuff away from you where you couldn't enjoy it, or you built up a whole empire for yourself, you had plenty, and then you just died and somebody else had it. That's like the story of human history. I don't care how big your empire is, you're going to die, and the Bible literally says somebody else is going to enjoy it. That's like toil your whole life and then just hand it off. Maybe if you're lucky, your kids will get it, right? That's it. That's what you get. This is a picture of work that you always get to enjoy. See, we will work in heaven, but it will not only be fruitful always, restful always, but we will always receive the bounty of it. Never in heaven will war or famine or drought or death steal the bounty of the work that you're going to do in the Lord, with the Lord. I can't even imagine that. I wish everything I touched in my job just was instantly bore fruit. You know how fulfilling that would be? You know, work would be a lot less annoying if everything I touched just turned to gold. That's not the case. So much of what I do doesn't bear fruit and it's frustrating and it's hard. And I have to, I have to depend on the Lord and just kind of grind through my days just hoping that God just shows me that he's using what I'm doing. That will not be what work is like in heaven. See, because work will be this experience of being in the Lord's presence and worshiping him with what I'm doing and immediately seeing how beneficial it is forever, never having to give it up. In verse 15, he says, I will plant them in their land permanently. I want you to understand something. All the way through the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis, the land means something specific. See, there's the literal translation, right, or the literal understanding, which is that they had the promised land. They were going to the promised land, but the promised land has never been the point, right? Some plot of ground in the Middle East is not the point. 
The promised land was always designed to be a lesson that showed them that God had a place for them. See, literally, going all the way back to Genesis, we see that God prepared a place for us to be with him. He didn't just, like, make a garden for us to live in, and the garden was somehow the point. He made a garden for us to live in with him. Then he has the chosen people of Israel, and he says, I'm going to develop you as a nation and bring you to this place where you're going to live with me. Well, we messed up the garden, and then the, the Israelites messed up the promised land, and then Jesus himself, he comes, and he, when he's done with his work here on earth, he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you to be with me. It's the whole point. God wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him, and he wants you to be with him permanently, to never question it, to never doubt it, to never be without him ever again. He wants to establish you in a loving relationship with him for all of eternity. Do you want that? Is that the focus of your life? Is that the point of why you're here and what you're doing? I want that I care for nothing except this relationship with God. Heaven is not a location filled with stuff. It is a relationship status. It is a state of being with God. And if you don't think that sounds like anything special, you're probably still in love with the world. You're probably still in love with the things the world has to offer you. You're probably hiding in a closet drinking bubblegum-flavored mouthwash and thinking, this is the life. And God has so much more for you. And some of you think, I don't understand. Why won't God just give me all the stuff I want? It's not sinful, right? You're like, I, I, want, I want this kind of job, or I want this kind of spouse, or I want this amount of money, or I want this degree at school, you're like, that's not, it's not like I want just drugs. Like I'm asking God for things that aren't inherently sinful. I don't understand why God doesn't just give me these things. Charles Spurgeon said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. God's will is for you to be in a relationship with him. And when that's what you want, you will have it that second. You will be in relationship with him, and it is the best possible thing. It is the only thing that matters. Give yourself up to God. Surrender your version of success that's keeping you from God. See, you have an idol, something that you've placed in front of God, and God says, don't have any other gods before me. Why? Because God's just mad about it? No, because he loves you so much and he knows that only he can fulfill you. That you were designed, that you were built to run on him. You guys have heard of the God-shaped hole. I don't think that's a good analogy. It's like you could kind of puzzle piece different things in there and try to figure it out. It's a God-sized hole. I don't care how much you throw into it, you'll never fill it up. And everything you throw into it just disappears into the abyss. Only an infinite God can fill that empty space in your soul. And every time you try to fill that space with something in the world, it's not even a drop in the bucket. And that's why it leaves you empty and defeated. We just went through probably like the most depressing book in the Bible, honestly. I mean... I wasn't really that aware of it until I got into study, and I was like, was Amos a good choice? It's a rough book. There's nine chapters, eight chapters of which are pretty much just bad. Why did God give us Amos? Because God wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you to know that this is actually the default that you're going to be separated from him and it's going to be bad. And Amos is the book telling you what it looks like. And at the very end of Amos, he says, it doesn't have to be like this. You can be 
perfectly connected with him forever. And it will be everything you didn't even know you wanted and needed for all of eternity. Fall in love with God. Surrender yourself to him. Tonight, if you don't know the Lord, if you think if this room was picked up in a sieve that you wouldn't make it through the filter, let somebody introduce you to Jesus Christ. Let somebody walk you through what it means to believe in him and follow him and be filled up the way that we are. See, here's the thing about eternity. As soon as you have a relationship with the Lord, your eternity starts right now. If all of eternity is a perfect connection with the Lord, and I already have a connection with the Lord, I'm already tasting heaven. Let somebody introduce you to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, but nothing in your life points to that reality, get with a believer tonight and shed light on your sin. Don't say, I don't have sin. Don't manipulate your way out of it. Don't deny that there's something you need to be saved from. Repent, confess, and let God take the burden off of you that's holding you down and keeping you away from him. Whatever that is, do it tonight. Guys, this is Matt O'Mealy, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that is defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.